Hello guys and a warm welcome to the True Crime Enthusiast podcast from myself, Paul, the creator, host and true crime enthusiast of the show's title, where as I speak to you, I hope that I find you all okay. Now I won't go through the usual waffle that I do here with this episode. I was sat watching the chaos happening all around right now. People are getting ill, people panic buying, self-isolating for a week or two weeks and it's pretty bloody bad really, isn't it? I mean... For fuck's sakes is all I can say. So I thought to myself, what I can do as a gesture is that for you guys listening, and it's only somewhat small, but some of you who may be self-isolating, I reckon you may be turning to podcasts even more so than usual right now. And to help pass even a tiny bit of that for you, I'm putting out one of the Patreon back catalogue episodes as a bonus episode of The Enthusiast this week available for everybody. There will still be an episode coming this week also. This is purely just a bonus one for the majority of you guys listening. I'll place a thread up in the show's Facebook discussion group should you wish to air your views about the episode afterwards, which I hope that you do, because I'd be interested as ever to hear them, of course. The bonus episode featured here recounts an unbelievably savage crime from the turn of the 1980s from the English county of Kent, and is one that I feel raises several questions and talking points, which I'm sure, or I hope anyway, will become clear as the episode progresses. The episode also does contain descriptions of a crime and events involving an elderly person that some listeners may find disturbing and or upsetting. So as always guys, please when listening, use your discretion. With that in mind, please join the True Crime Enthusiast for a bonus episode entitled The Enigma of Enfield Lodge. The village of Pluckley in the English county of Kent is located just five miles west of the large Kent town of Ashford and could be one that's like countless other villages of its type across the country, apart from Pluckley having two things about it that make it stand out. Firstly, it was the location where the early 1990s television series The Darling Buds of May, a series starring Del Boy himself, Sir David Jason, and that was based on the 1958 novel of the same name by H.E. Bates, was filmed. Now it's not a show that I ever watched myself really, but I do remember it being on, and having looked it up to make the episode, it was basically an idyllic feel-good type show about some sort of dodgy farmer and his ever-expanding massive family. It's probably more remembered for being the series that gave Catherine Zeta-Jones a big break into show business, setting her on course to be married to today Mr Burns lookalike, Michael Douglas, because he just looks bloody awful now, doesn't he? I know he's older than water, but... And whenever I think of him, I always think of the bit with him and Sharon Stone when they're shagging in Basic Instinct, and it's just... Ugh, ooh, God, minging. Pluckley's second claim to fame is that when the entry was recognised in the Guinness Book of Records, in the 1989 edition it was noted as the most haunted village in England having a reported 12 different spooks and spectres prowling around it. There's a red lady, a white lady, a phantom coaching horses, two different suicides by hanging, and the ghost of an unfortunate labourer who fell into a pit of clay and drowned at the site of the old clay pit and brickworks in the village, to name just but a few of them. 
Although this category is no longer in use by Guinness, the area still retains its reputation for the supernatural, and as a result has become a bit of a mecca for ghost hunters, with ghost hunts and walking tours being held there on a frequent basis, as well as being the location for several shows like Most Haunted to have filmed episodes there. It also has an area just outside the village known as the Screaming Woods, if it didn't sound shit your pants scary enough already. Now I don't know what you guys think about the supernatural, and that's a whole different discussion that we could be here all night with. But many years ago, I went on one of these ghost walking tours during a weekend away in York, and I'm still uncertain as to whether the strange old gent who hosted the tour was a ghost or not himself. I don't remember paying him for the tour, and back at the pub where the tour started, he seemed to just almost vanish. He was there one minute, and he was gone the next. My mum as well is convinced also that a ghostly old man called at our door late one snowy evening when I was a baby, wanting a lift late at night into the next town. But who knows, the truth is out there, eh? But we're on a bit more of a definite plane for the bonus episode this month, that best begins with a description that was read out during proceedings in Maidstone Crown Court in June 1981. The description comes from a detective constable from Kent Police, Ian Nichols, who described to the court the horror that he'd witnessed when he'd looked into the garden shed of a large house set in six acres of Kent countryside, Enfield Lodge, early in the evening of Wednesday the 8th of October 1980. Detective Constable Nichols told the court, Miss Marshall lay on her right side, fully dressed and wearing her Wellington boots. Her face and clothing were soaked in blood and her left ear was almost severed. Her hands had been tied behind her with cord and her head had been struck several times with a blunt instrument. Her throat had been cut, apparently by a knife, and she'd been stabbed by a garden or hay fork several times. The hay fork was impaled in her neck. Unsurprisingly, even some of the most experienced officers attending the scene thought this has got to be one of the most brutal murders that they'd ever encountered, because that's got to be a hell of a thing to find that, hasn't it, right? It was even more sickening because Miss Marshall was 79 years old. So what manner of evil inflicts such horror upon an old woman, one who was just 4 feet 10 inches tall and weighed no more than 7 stones in weight? To the few people in Pluckley who knew her, because the murdered woman, Gwendolyn Marshall, was a fiercely private and independent individual, her gardener, grocer and postman all had a collective opinion of her as the nicest person in the world. Miss Marshall, as she was commonly known, was generous, active and still looking after herself in the house that she'd lived alone in for more than 40 years, Enfield Lodge which had been left to her by her father and which was a large three-bedroomed property set on its own enclosed six acres of grounds just off Pluckley's Forge Lane. Described as one of the village's upper class, Miss Marshall could also be said to be an archetype. She typified the type of elderly eccentric whose habits are rendered acceptable by their possession of money, including reclusiveness. An only child, she'd never married or had any family of her own and kept very much her own company. Miss Marshall rarely ventured into the village of Pluckley itself to socialise or shop 
and what supplies she couldn't grow herself in her own vegetable plot, she had delivered instead, establishing accounts with the local grocers, butchers, etc. for deliveries, and paying any bills by post. This isn't to say that she was aloof in any way, because if she was seen by passers-by while she was out in the grounds of Enfield Lodge, she'd quite happily stop and talk to them. The only regular outing Miss Marshall did have was a weekly trip up into London, which she undertook without fail and which caused the villagers to speculate wildly about the reason for. Some said she was off to a fancy man's that she kept there, others said that she'd been involved in some top secret work during the war and was still involved to some capacity, going to meet with handlers, that kind of crap. In reality, the reason for her trips was nothing more than to visit a property in Bloomsbury that had been left to her by her wealthy parents and which Miss Marshall let out as accommodation to art students, making the trip each week to collect their weekly rent. The money from this was enough to afford Miss Marshall quite a comfortable income to live on and she could spend her time indulging in her own hobby of watercolour painting, which she'd reportedly become quite accomplished at. In the midst of the afternoon, the 8th of October 1980, the local police officer, PC Andrew Coulson, had received an urgent telephone call to attend Miss Marshall's home. The distressed and worried sounding telephone call had come from Miss Marshall's nearest neighbour, Lucy Winter, and had convinced him enough for him to urgently make headway to the property. Upon him arriving at the house just after 4pm, he found Lucy there with a young local couple, Alan and Sheila Dryland, who'd arrived at Miss Marshall's house about an hour earlier that afternoon, following an invitation she'd extended to them to come to pick apples from her orchard. They'd been unable to find her when they arrived, and were concerned at her absence, so had gone up and asked Lucy if she knew where Miss Marshall may be. Lucy didn't have any idea, but sharing their concerns, agreed to attend Enfield Lodge with the couple to look for her. When they got to the house, there'd been once again no replies to repeated knocking or calls, and so Alan Dryland had decided to enter the property through the unlocked back door, followed by Sheila and Lucy. In the kitchen, Alan noticed a copious amount of blood staining on the floor, and with this, their concerns grew. Perhaps Miss Marshall had had some sort of accident and was lying hurt somewhere, needing medical attention. Alan, Sheila and Lucy all now moved through the house searching for the missing householder, noting with growing unease that there was also blood staining on the lounge carpet, very near to where Miss Marshall's open handbag lay, clearly disturbed, with a checkbook lying half in and half out of it. Upstairs, there were several more traces of blood in each of the three bedrooms, in the upstairs workroom, and both the upstairs bathroom and downstairs toilet of the large property, enough to clearly be able to tell that something very serious had happened there. But of Miss Marshall, there was no sign. It was at this point that they decided to contact police. Upon PC Coulson arriving, he shared their opinions that something seriously amiss had happened but realised that a systematic search of the house and grounds was too big a task for a single village police officer, and so he summoned police assistance from the nearby town of Ashford, which shortly arrived. By torchlight, the officers now searched the house and six-acre grounds as thoroughly as possible, until at six o'clock that evening, the only possible place they hadn't looked in 
was a padlocked garden shed that was located at the rear of the house. The senior officer at the scene, Sergeant Eric Peacock, ordered the padlock to be cut off, which was done so to meet the sight that Detective Constable Ian Nichols described at the onset of this tale. By 7pm that evening, the regally named Detective Chief Superintendent Earl Spencer, head of East Kent CID, was spearheading the subsequent murder inquiry and ordered immediate house-to-house inquiries carried out within the Pluckley area. These inquiries were less than an hour old when, not far from Enfield Lodge, Sergeant Peacock encountered a local youth that he'd met on several occasions before, a 21-year-old unemployed ne'er-do-well named Nicky Manuch, who lived in the nearby village of Smarden. When he was spoken to and asked for his movements that day, Manuch claimed that he'd been to the job centre in Ashford before he'd gotten the 2.23pm train back from there to Pluckley Station where he then visited the home of an acquaintance of his, a 17-year-old Pluckley resident named Peter Luckhurst, who lived on a sprawling council estate at the bottom of Pluckley's Forge Hill. Manoch advised that police may want to speak to Luckhurst, because he volunteered that earlier that afternoon, Luckhurst had told him that he'd found Miss Marshall's King Charles Spaniel, Sophie, running loose on Forge Lane, and he'd lifted her back over Miss Marshall's fence, into the grounds of Enfield Lodge. Now Peter Luckhurst was also a name that Sergeant Peacock knew. Like Manuch, he was also unemployed, but he'd never come to police attention for being anything more than a petty thief or a general nuisance. Although he was considered by some to be feckless and as much used as an inflatable dartboard, Luckhurst was also widely liked by many in the Pluckley area, where he was considered a lovable rogue and one of these to hold a soft spot for him was someone that Luckhurst knew very well, Gwendolyn Marshall. In fact, the youngster and the curiously reclusive old lady had rather a warm regard for each other. Luckhurst's mother had passed away from tuberculosis five years previously, but while she'd been alive, she'd been Miss Marshall's daily help, and consequently, Miss Marshall knew Master Peter, as she called him, very well having what was described as a genuine affection for him. And it was seemingly reciprocated, as the old spinster had taken on the form of an almost mother figure to the boy following his mother's death. He was a regular visitor to Miss Marshall, often helping her with chores around the house, or assisting in the upkeep of the sizeable grounds. He was also given the freedom of the grounds of the house and orchards, and was allowed to shoot rabbits on Enfield Lodge's six acres. On the day following the murder, Thursday October the 9th then, police picked up both Peter Luckhurst and Nicky Manuch and took them both to Ashford Police Station to answer further questions and assist with inquiries. The two youths were spoken to separately and once here, Manuch repeated his story of having visited Ashford the previous afternoon to go to the job centre. He'd gotten back to Pluckley shortly after 2.30pm and headed straight to Peter's house where he remarked that Peter didn't seem his usual self that afternoon. Manuch told police, I've known him a long time and when I was in the house he was quiet and didn't talk much. Normally he's sort of noisy and mucks about a lot. Manuch was then questioned closely about the alibi that he'd given and he repeated the same story that he told the previous evening. 
If he'd caught the 2.23pm train from Ashford, it was only a nine-minute journey to Pluckley, where he would have indeed arrived shortly after 2.30pm, which would also seemingly rule him out as a suspect in the murder, because the estimated time of the murder lay between 1.45pm and 2.30pm. Now the former time could be established because Gwendolyn had been seen by the postman at that time, whereas the latter time was only shortly before the Drylands had arrived, taking up their invitation to pick apples from the Enfield Lodge orchard. Meanwhile, Peter Luckhurst was telling his interviewers, That old lady was like a mother to me. I would not even slap her around the face. When it was suggested that perhaps he and Manuch, acting in tandem, had killed Miss Marshall, Luckhurst strenuously denied this. He said, No way am I going to say my mate killed her. If I were to say we had done it and my mate had an alibi, then I would get done for 20 years. I may as well just kill myself. Now although this sounds oppressive, doesn't it? It's commonplace in interview techniques. You guys must have seen enough films and dramas to know how this works by now. The same was put to both Luckhurst and Manu, who both denied the accusation, but feeling then that the clearly agitated Luckhurst had something to get off his chest, the experienced interviewers now sensed they were at a crucial point, a moment in the interview where they could now ask crucial questions, and put things to Luckhurst in such a way that he wouldn't feel defensive and back off. The question was thus put to the 17-year-old, Peter, what happened when you went into the house yesterday? Despite Luckhurst claiming that he hadn't been around to Enfield Lodge the day before, the officer pressed on, It has become obvious to me that you went in there on your own and for some reason something happened, whether you intended it or not. There was a lengthy pause and then Luckhurst broke his silence, saying, I hit her with a log, I wanted some money and had had too much to drink. Luckhurst then claimed he had battered Miss Marshall senseless with a log and had then half dragged, half carried her all around the house looking for money. He then told police, I got her to the shed, tied her hands, pushed her to the floor and gave her a hefty kick. I don't know why I kicked her. Luckhurst was to shortly after this write his own statement, although it was filled with poor grammar and punctuation. The following is the verbatim statement that Luckhurst wrote himself, but I have adapted it slightly, of course, to fit the narrative for the episode. I had known Miss Marshall for a long time, but only through my mother. I left the Spectre Inn at around two o'clock, and from there I went into my house, got my bike, and went to Enfield Lodge, where I left my bike and entered the house. On entering, I saw Miss Marshall and I grabbed the log and hit her. I asked her if she'd got any money and she replied no, so I hit her again on the head trying to knock her out. But failing this, I got angry and forced her around upstairs and downstairs of the house. But I could find no money at all except a checkbook, which was of no use at all, so I left it. I hit her again, this time knocking out the lady. While unconscious, I got her to the shed and tied her hands. I pushed her on the floor and kicked her, and I went all weird and started hitting her with a fork. On recovering from the funny turn, I locked the door and ran like hell. I got on my bike and went home and into my shed. From my shed, I saw Nick Manuch walking past. 
I asked him where he was going and he said up to the village so I went with him to get his bike which he'd left there and we went back to my house where I ate my tea and left for Smarden. An 8 inch bladed knife was subsequently found in a drawer in Luckhurst's house which was subjected to forensic testing as well as his shoes and the clothing that he'd worn the previous day. This testing revealed minute traces of blood on the blade of the knife, on a small patch of the sleeve of his jacket, and minute traces on his shoes and the bottom of his trousers. When tested, it was found to be of the same blood group as Gwendolyn Marshall, although it was of course a couple of years before the breakthrough discovery of DNA profiling. But this was conclusive enough for police, combined with his self-penned confession, and Peter Luckhurst was charged with the murder of Gwendolyn Marshall, police satisfied that they'd so quickly caught a brutal murderer. Eight months later, in June 1981, Peter Luckhurst's trial for the murder of Gwendolyn Marshall began at Maidstone Crown Court. But by this time, however... Luckhurst had withdrawn the confession he'd given eight months previously, claiming that the police had put him under pressure to do so. In the dock, Luckhurst explained that how about 11.30am on the day of the murder, he'd left his house and headed to Pluckley's former Spectre Inn, which today no longer exists, it's a private residence. He drank several lagers here and had played pool for a while, before leaving the pub at 2 o'clock that afternoon licensing hours back then not being all through the day as they are today, and at this time the pub had shut until the evening opening. Luckers claimed that he'd then returned to his home to collect his bicycle, and had then decided to cycle up to Enfield Lodge to see if Miss Marshall had any work for him, which was something that he would do regularly. However, when he'd arrived at the property, he said that he'd received no reply from knocking, and had decided to go inside. He then claimed, I saw some blood on the floor. I picked up a log and saw there was some blood on it. I dropped it and went into another room and saw blood marks on the floor. In the kitchen, there was blood on the kitchen unit. Luckers claimed that upon discovering this, he'd once again called out for Miss Marshall but still received no reply. After looking all around the house and noticing blood in each of the upstairs rooms, he then got into the garden and made his way around the grounds, shouting for Miss Marshall. But there was no answer and no sign of her. He then claimed he'd gone across to the shed to look. Finding it unlocked, he looked inside and described what he found. She was bloody and I knelt down next to her. I prodded her in the back a couple of times to see if she would move. A hay fork was stuck in her neck and I pulled it out. I couldn't hear her breathing and I thought she was dead. Luckers went on to describe how he had then replaced the hay fork in the neck of Gwendolyn Marshall and afterwards he'd ran outside, padlocked the door, ran back to where he'd left his cycle and pedalled furiously home like the hounds of hell themselves were snapping at his heels. Now if Luckhurst had hoped that the account he gave of finding Gwendolyn Marshall already dead would be accepted by the jury and they would warm to him, he was very much mistaken because he did very little to endear himself to them. In fact, in the courtroom he was his own worst enemy, with his standoffish demeanour and his inability to satisfactorily explain further aspects of his story when asked, even by his own defence counsel, Michael Mortland QC. 
I'll give you an example of this, right? When Mr. Mortland asked Luckhurst why he'd not gone to the police immediately to report what he'd found, Luckhurst simply replied, I wouldn't give them assistance for anything. I would not do it if my old man was dead. This attitude of hostility towards the police stemmed from the many times that he'd been in front of them following his various scrapes with the law over minor matters, and now Luckhurst was claiming that he was simply afraid that police would accuse him of the murder, so no way on earth was he going to freely volunteer any information. He furthered, If there's any trouble in the village and I am nearby, the dirty end of the stick goes in my hand. He's not really doing himself any favours here whatsoever, is he? It got worse for Luckhurst when he was cross-examined by Colin Nichols QC, prosecuting, as although Luckhurst was to admit that he did feel some anger towards the killer of Gwendolyn Marshall, when he was asked this, when he was asked by Mr Nichols if he hoped the killer would be caught, and him thus vindicated, Luckhurst replied, I could not give two hoots. It was almost as if this was immaturity from Luckers showing, him showing off, trying to be the big I am with the devil may care attitude, or perhaps, and it's highly unlikely I would imagine, but even if he still that late in the day didn't grasp the levity of the deep shit that he was in. But any responses such as these, and the general attitude of a chip on the shoulder, isn't going to impress a jury one bit. He did explain that the bloodstains on the blade of the knife that had been removed from his home were only there because he'd picked up the knife and used it in the shed when he discovered Miss Marshall's body. He claimed he had simply prodded her back with it several times to see if she responded and had then lifted the collar of her wax jacket with it. The reason, he claimed, was that he didn't want to cover his hands with blood. And indeed, he managed to get very little blood on him at all. When his clothing and his shoes were examined, there was actually very little found, insufficient blood found to even say precisely where it had come from, just that it was of the Group O, which was common to around half of the population. Even Mr Justice Stocker presiding was moved to remark, It comes down to this, there were no marks attributable to this defendant on anything. And this was indeed right. The Crown had no fingerprints in the shed that could be tied to Peter Luckhurst, and whilst his fingerprints were found at various points around Enfield Lodge, he was a regular visitor there, and as such, these fingerprints as evidence were worthless. However, Luckhurst had still confessed to the murder, and after a trial lasting just five days, the jury retired to consider a verdict, and were back in the courtroom just over two hours later to deliver a unanimous verdict of guilty. Mr Justice Stocker, in a complete arse-about-face stance from what he'd remarked earlier in proceedings, referred to the overwhelming evidence against Luckhurst, and addressing him for sentencing, told Luckhurst, All I feel capable of saying about you is that it's been noticeable that you've been totally lacking in any compassion or pity, nor have you shown any signs of remorse for what happened. The sentence is one that is fixed by law, it is that you be detained during Her Majesty's pleasure. Now whenever we've come across this term before on the show, it's usually reserved for those of a younger age, those who are still classed as a minor, and the term doesn't carry a limit to any period of detention, 
There's no fixed minimum sentence. This, of course, is dependent upon reports as to how the individual concerned responds to the sentence that's passed. Do they subsequently admit their guilt if they've pleaded not guilty and been convicted in the face of overwhelming evidence? Do they show any genuine remorse, any signs of behavioural improvements, that kind of thing? Peter Looker spent the best part of two decades incarcerated for the murder of Gwendolyn Marshall before being released on licence just before the turn of the century. His whereabouts today are not known. If he's still alive today, he'll be middle-aged and may have even changed his name and began a new life somewhere. Perhaps tired of being the centre of the controversy that raged about the case for many years afterwards, and with lifelong residents of Pluckley, perhaps even still does to this day. If you look at it on the surface, the case against Peter Looker seems to be a cast iron one. It seems as certain as Prince Andrew's advisers who said to him, Yeah, go on, Duke, do the interview, are now looking for new jobs. I mean, Lucas confessed to murder in a quite vivid description that certainly would fit what the evidence that was found at Enfield Lodge would suggest. He had traces of blood on his clothing and a knife with traces of the same blood group on its blade in his house. And that could have been all she wrote and the end of the matter, a disturbed killer taken off the streets for committing such a horrific crime. I'm sure that you know by now how I feel about crimes against the elderly from past episodes of the regular show. They particularly anger and sicken me, and this one is just horror upon horror, isn't it? But was Peter Luckhurst actually the killer? Or did an innocent person confess, perhaps out of fear, and go to prison for a large part of his life? These are questions that have raged for many years since the murder. There were people in Pluckley who believed from the off that Peter Luckhurst was innocent and that in no way could be capable of such an atrocious crime. They just couldn't even bring themselves to consider that he was. It wasn't that he was universally approved of and villager of the year. As we've said, he had more than a few scrapes with the law and following his mother's death had been a difficult youngster who rarely attended school, although there's no suggestion that he was educationally subnormal in any way but never was there a hint of any violence from him, and that was what many couldn't get past thinking. Immediately after Luckhurst's trial then, a group was formed, monikered with the grand-sounding title of the Peter Luckhurst Defence Committee, with the sole aspect of, I bet you can't guess from the title, yep, clearing his name. To help them do this, the committee employed the services of a private detective from the town of Hastings, Brian Ford, who took on the case, and it became a bit of an obsession for him that he worked tirelessly on for several years. According to the committee, two defence witnesses that could have had a dramatic impact upon the trial verdict had not been called to give evidence at Luckhurst's trial, despite the Crown being fully aware of their existence. One of these witnesses would apparently have given testimony to having seen a man running away from the vicinity of Enfield Lodge at around the time it's believed that Miss Marshall was murdered, whilst the second witness would have testified as to having seen a man burning clothing on a bonfire nearby only shortly after it was believed she was killed. There's no further information available through research as to any descriptions of these people or the exact locations where they were seen doing these but according to the committee, they were witnesses that were ready to step up and like catchphrase say what they see, but were never called. 
They were adamant though that Peter Luckhurst was not this running man and nor did he burn any clothes on a bonfire. Throughout the entire day of the 8th of October, Luckhurst had worn the same outfit throughout. When he went to the pub at lunchtime, when he met up with Nicky Manuk later that afternoon, even when he sat watching television at home later that evening. No attempt had been made to clean any of his clothing whatsoever before it was seized by police. Nicky Manuk, Luckhurst's father, no one who'd seen Luckhurst that day had ever mentioned seeing any evidence of bloodstaining to his clothing, and indeed, when his clothing was forensically examined, only such minimal amounts of blood were found that it was impossible to determine exactly where it had come from, only that it was common group O. Whereas if somebody brutally batters an elderly spinster into unconsciousness, drags her around injured and heavily bleeding all over the house, then cuts her throat and inflicts dreadful mutilation upon her face and head, before the final horrific act of pinning her to the floor with a garden fork through the throat, which must have taken some force and frenzy, then you're surely going to look like Carrie at the prom after doing that, you'd think, wouldn't you? Similarly, if it had been a different person, who I'm sure it may have crossed your mind by now, could quite possibly have been someone who's already been mentioned within the narrative, Nicky Manuch, then he too would have been heavily bloodstained when he met Peter Luckers that afternoon. The killer has to have been, it's too much of a bloodbath to not be covered in blood, isn't it? But in the years following Luckers' incarceration, he never once accused Manuch of the crime. Questions have also been raised concerning the knife that was found in the drawer at Luckhurst's home. How exactly had he gotten it back? Had he held it out in his hand and if so ran a risk of being discovered with it or had he placed it into the pocket of his jacket to conceal it? But the problem was, no blood was discovered in his jacket pockets at all. There were also no traces of blood whatsoever discovered on the handle of the knife. And would Luckhurst really have been naive enough to have left such an incriminating item around where it could easily have been discovered by his family and was easily discovered by police? Furthermore, Luckhurst was not described as being a money grabber. For all of his petty thefts, these seemed to be out of devilment rather than for gain really and he would equally work for cash in hand payments. As well as doing odd jobs around Enfield Lodge for Miss Marshall, He would also do labouring work for the farmers of the local district, or would even work as a groundskeeper for Lady Spens, a member of the local landed gentry. Luckhurst's supporters all claimed that murder for money simply wasn't in his nature to do. There's also the issue of the significant omissions in Luckhurst's confession. He made no mention whatsoever of slitting Miss Marshall's throat or or almost severing her ear, despite the other significant detail that he'd given in his initial confession. He could describe exactly where the body was, how it lay, even down to the grisly details of a pitchfork being thrust through the neck. He was at some point in proximity with that body, but he didn't mention the mutilations, and you must think that that's something you wouldn't forget that you'd done, wouldn't you? The same thing with describing half-dragging, half-carrying it all around the house. When he was asked where, he described every room that he had taken her into, and sure enough, bloodstaining was found wherever he described that the seemingly gave weight to his story. Except for the downstairs lavatory. 
Extensive bloodstaining was found in there also, but Luckhurst made no mention of having gone in here. Indeed, he later claimed when it was put to him that he had no knowledge of Miss Marshall even having a bathroom downstairs. So did he quickly jump upon his own omission when his statement was later read back to him, and cleverly use it to suggest that he wasn't actually the killer? Or as the Peter Luckhurst Defence Committee suggested, Luckhurst had admitted to mention both of these matters because he hadn't committed the murder. Over several years, the Defence Committee made noise to try and get the case reopened, with private detective Brian Ford poring over the evidence that was available and that kept coming in. The year after Luckhurst was convicted, a television documentary entitled Is Peter Luckhurst Innocent? aired on Granada Television. But despite this and the services of MPs in the Kent constituencies being called upon to lend support to the campaign, the case remained firmly closed. In 1984, a feature in the Sunday Times newspaper published an in-depth account of the murder where it reviewed the evidence that had convicted Luckhurst and concluded that he was unlikely to have been the killer but may have been present as an accomplice, perhaps even solely as a bystander. Then, ten years after Luckhurst's conviction, the case was subject of an episode of a television series called In Suspicious Circumstances. Now this was a show presented by the equaliser himself, Edward Woodward, in which a series of real-life murder cases, in each of which there was an element of doubt about the guilty party, were dramatised. It was part documentary, part drama, part experts giving their opinions, pretty much like David Wilson or Emma Kenny do nowadays on every British true crime documentary you turn on, you know. Unfortunately, I was unable to find any existing copies of either programme available for research purposes whilst I was looking into material for this episode. But back in 1991, this episode of Insuspicious Circumstances when it was aired did reignite interest in the case, and once again, the uncertainties about the evidence that had convicted Luckhurst were raised, which led to the Home Office to call for another report on the case. A review of the evidence did go ahead, but after an inquiry lasting almost two years for this said report, a decision was taken to not proceed any further with it, and the report never materialised. So the truth of the matter is elusive really. Some people believe that the case was open and shut, Justice was served and Gwendolyn Marshall's killer was caught and convicted correctly and efficiently. And yet, as we've said, there were many, there likely still are many today too, at the time who supported Peter Luckhurst's innocence. Some would even go so far as to say at the time that they had a good idea who really killed Gwendolyn Marshall so barbarously in her own home, and then dumped her in a garden shed, placing a pitchfork through her neck as a final indignity. Other people have equally suggested that Luckhurst was present at the murder for at least part of the time. They claim that he and another person had gone to Enfield Lodge with the intention of committing a robbery, and that when matters went too far, when violence became involved, Luckhurst ran away in a panic leaving Gwendolyn Marshall to die so horrifically at the hands of another person. No one has ever been publicly named, however. But is it really credible that, in the cold light of day, sat in a prison cell looking at the start of a long, indeterminate sentence, if Peter Luckers was innocent of murder, would he have protected the guilty party at his own expense of years of his liberty? And for what reason? 
our misguided loyalty or out of fear. Journalists Justin Picardi and Dorothy Wade spent many years researching this crime and concluded the theory that offers the most plausible explanation of the questions that have been raised that cast possible doubt upon Luckhurst's culpability. Say, for example, Luckhurst wasn't alone. Say he was merely an accomplice in Miss Marshall's murder. He may indeed have only been a bystander. If he was, it would explain why he knew so much detail about the crime but had so few traces of blood upon his clothing. It explains the absence of fingerprints in the shed, and if he wasn't the protagonist himself, this may be the reason that he may not have seen the killer drag Miss Marshall into the downstairs lavatory. Furthermore, if he'd run away through fear before Miss Marshall's killer had completed the task, then he may not have known that her throat had been cut, which would explain why he made no reference to it in his confession. Luckhurst may even have been visited by the killer afterwards and given a knife to look after, the threat of revealing that he was involved being enough to coerce him into keeping it somewhere, or Luckhurst's actual fear of someone who'd committed such violence enough to ensure that he would. Now for this theory to be correct, then the killer must have been someone that Luckhurst knew very well and obviously feared which would account for his silence. In a small village such as Pluckley, any strangers would be noticed, one would have thought, so the killer must have been someone who was known to many people and who never faced justice for the crime, and who may still even live in the area to this very day, having gotten away with a brutal murder. Of course, you can't directly accuse anybody, can you? Despite all the investigations and speculations such as this, the murder of Gwendolyn Marshall does remain officially solved, but a controversial and puzzling case to this day. And we are left just with questions following it. For example, would Peter Luckhurst have killed so viciously one day a woman that he looked upon as a mother figure? Why keep a knife and not dump it somewhere? Was Nicky Manock lying when he told police about Luckhurst claiming to have been near Enfield Lodge earlier that afternoon? Or did Luckhurst indeed just omit this from his confession? Did Peter Luckhurst drunkenly commit such a savage killing for money? Or did he witness somebody else do it? Did he simply discover Miss Marshall's body not long after a horrific killing and indeed ran away thinking that he would himself be blamed? Did he then simply confess out of confusion, out of coercion, or even just attention-seeking, as crazy as that sounds? A bit of food for thought, shall we say, that I discovered when I was researching the episode, is that Luckhurst did have a history of confessing to things that he hadn't done. For what reason exactly is unclear, whether it was to come across as a big man for notoriety, for attention, it's unsure. An example of this is as follows. There was reportedly a time in the late 1970s that a car was vandalised in Pluckley Village itself. It's claimed that most of the villagers knew exactly who'd committed the damage, but despite this, a completely innocent Peter Luckhurst confessed to the crime to police, was charged and summoned before a juvenile court where he received a fine for doing so. So he had a history of confessing to stuff he clearly hadn't done. So is this what he did here? And is this the reason for him retracting his confession because it was ultimately a load of old crap? But a pretty spot on load of old crap or what, eh? What do you guys think? There are a few questions with this one, isn't there? 
This is where it comes over to you guys to make up your own minds about it. Was the right person in prison for such a horrific murder? Or indeed, did Miss Marshall's real killer get away with a crime? There's been a lot of me thinking out loud through this episode, I know. But there's a lot of food for thought here, I'm sure you'll agree, and it's a real one to ponder. I look forward to hearing what you think about the case, which although it's a savage one, I hope that you found an interesting and informative one nonetheless. There's precious little available for research concerning the case, but there is a crime scene photograph available that a link to will be contained as a link with this episode. It's quite a disturbing picture really, and one that I'm sure that if it was needed anyway, would bring the horror of this crime home with you. And it is a horrific one truly, isn't it? As I said at the onset, should you wish to get in touch to hear your own thoughts and theories about the case, then you can do so on the thread on the show's Facebook discussion group, or through any of the show's social media should you wish to. I shall also share on Instagram the crime scene photograph that I've mentioned here, so head over there and for a bit of a gawp if you want. I hope that the bonus episode is one that you found interesting and informative, and that it's past even a slight bit of time for you guys who are self-isolating right now. It's something I could do for all right now, so I've no hesitation whatsoever in doing so. I wish all of you the very best. Take care and be safe, and you have my thoughts completely, guys. I've been Paul, the true crime enthusiast, wishing you all safe times, and I shall speak to you all very soon. Goodbye for now.